Well, hello everyone, and uh, especially to Sarah, a good welcome to Sarah, and I'm very pleased to meet you, Sarah, even if it's only virtually. Um, your own work has been described as uh, very important in the regeneration of modern Gothic, and of course it's particular, of particular interest to us all here that Iris Murdoch's Gothic novels interested you. And I'd like to take you back some years ago to your, to your PhD that, that Mars mentioned. Um, I remember my own supervisor told me that a PhD was only an apprentice work and I was mortified because I thought <laughs> it'd taken years out of my life. <laughs> but certainly for you, it, it led down all sorts of interesting avenues, particularly in terms of Melmoth the Wanderer. But what you did in that PhD, it was a creative writing PhD. And um, part of, so a large part of the thesis was the novel you were working on, which was Confusion, which was later published as After Me Comes the Flood. Um, but in the critical piece, you chose to, chose to look at two of Murdoch's novels and two classic Gothic works. And the two Murdoch novels were The Bell and The Unicorn. And of those two, I think The Unicorn is the most obviously Gothic, but they both are Gothic in many ways. Um, but the two um, classic goth Gothic novels you chose, one was um, Matthew Lewis's The Monk, uh, which was published in 1796 in that huge wave of Gothic fiction that came out in the late 18th century, which um, for those of you who haven't read it, is, um, is really about a, um, a very senior monk in Madrid who is seduced by a young woman who disguises herself as a novice monk um, and uh, has a portrait of the Virgin Mary sent to him, which is actually based on her own face. Um, and uh, it's a critique of Roman Catholicism really, because of course he worships the portrait and then led astray by this young woman who appears to be a young man and ends up doing the most dreadful things, including murdering his mother and uh, sleeping with his sister as well as you know doing other vile things and the other gothic novel is Matthew Lewis's um, uh, uh, sorry it's Charles Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer and there's a clear link between Sarah's novel um, Melmoth and we'll come to that a bit later and in that novel um, a man sells his soul um, sells his soul to the devil it's a Faustian, Faustian novel sells his soul to the devil to get 150 years of life but then realizes what he's done and roams the world um, trying to get someone to change places with him. And of course, only the most desperate who've seen the most horrific things or at the most degraded state of their lives are willing to listen. So he sees scenes of torture and um, terrible violence. Now on the surface, these two novels um, seem very unlike anything Murdoch ever wrote. And I'm fascinated by that choice, Sarah. So I wonder whether you could say a little bit about what led you to choose those four novels and what light they, those classic ones shed on Murdoch's um, Gothic novels and, and how they influenced your own thinking about both the Gothic and your own work. Um, that's such a wonderful question. And I think the idea of linking apparently utterly disparate and disconnected novels speaks very deeply to the power of the Gothic and to what it is. And one of the things I'm very fond of saying and of reminding people is that the Gothic is not a genre, it's a sensation. And that is why the Gothic is discernible in so many different types of fiction. And why you can discern it in The Bell or The Unicorn, or even The Sea, The Sea, obviously in The Severed Head and so many of her novels, but also in these rather hysterical novels. Um, I always laugh when I think about The Monk because it's increasingly preposterous. Um, and so is Matchman. And so when someone asks what joins them, I would say there's two things that are integral to the Gothic that are shared by all of these books and by all Gothic fiction. One of them is that they have the capacity 
to arouse in the reader the sensations and the feelings that the characters in the novel are feeling. So a true Gothic novel destabilizes, disturbs and seduces the reader as much as the characters. And that is the Gothic sensation. That's what's at the heart of the Gothic sensation. So for example, if you're reading something like Matthew Lewis's The Monk, what you have in your hands is a desperately charismatic and very virtuous man being tempted to great wickedness in a way that is very exciting. So the reader, instead of being repulsed by what he's being invited to do, is instead thrilled and seduced and rather wants the monk to do these dreadful things. The Gothic contains this idea of the sympathy for the devil, right? That, that the devil is not repulsive, but actually seductive. So it invites this kind of sense of transgression. Or if you read the opening, oh, well, there's a, there's a part in the bell, which I think is, is about a form of Gothic sensation as regards um, kind of morality and being sucked in by the text and disturbed and not really knowing how you feel. There's a moment when one of the characters who has fought against his homosexuality for a very long time um, wants to seduce a beautiful young boy. And this is very transgressive. This boy is in his power, he's very young, but the nature of the Gothic is that you're drawn in as much of the characters. And so instead of reading your response to the novel as a rational person, you read it as if you yourself were in the text, destabilised, seduced by transgression, not quite sure if you're mad or if you're sane, um, made, um, given this sense of the uncanny that is so necessary to the Gothic, which is this feels very familiar, the church setting, uh, the country house, it feels very familiar and I know how I would react in those circumstances and yet it's not familiar at all and I'm not reacting the way I think that I would and I find the idea of this transgression very delicious and very delightful. Um, so there's that element of the gothic sensation and that doesn't come from a maiden in a nightgown screaming running down a corridor, you can put that in a novel and not affect the reader at all. In, in the right way. Um, and so there's that. And then what the, what the other thing that these Gothic novels have in common with Iris is a profound, serious preoccupation with the nature of goodness. And I don't think the Gothic is generally or, or has historically been taken seriously as a very moral mode of writing, but how can you play around with transgression how can you play around with wickedness unless you play around with goodness too? So all of these books talk about how to be good. What, what is goodness, you know? Um, and, you know, what is sanity? So once you start to realise that the Gothic isn't motif, it's not castle on a moor, that it can contain that, it's not maiden in a nightgown, it's deeply morally serious, deeply concerned with how to be good and concerned with the gothic sensation of affecting the reader you then start to see it kind of cropping up in very unexpected places yeah i agree with all that and um i i, I agree that the gothic isn't a genre i always describe it as a mode you know yes. that sort of transmutes from one century or one decade to another um and i also think you're absolutely right uh that the gothic is at its best about Good. It's a very moral sort of um, mode. Um, and I, it reminded me of something that, that um, Michael says, Michael Mee says in The Bell, when he says, um, could one recognise refinements of good 
if one did not recognize refinements of evil. Yeah. So that comparison is, is, is germane, I think, to the Gothic. Um, and you also talked about feelings. And I think it was Maturin who said, feelings are my main events. Um, I think you said emo emotions are my events. Yes, emotions yeah. are my main yeah. events. Emotions Absolutely. are my main events. So the, the Gothic novel, I agree, it's about sensation. It gives you that uh, visceral experience of feelings that imaginatively that you perhaps wouldn't have in your own life, your own everyday mm. life. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about the, the way the Gothic signals itself as a, as a mode, because um, one of the things you you said in your uh, one of your articles, I think it was in the um, journal Ian, it was a, an article called A Sublime Contagion, which I thought was a lovely title. <laughs> um, but you said, Gothic fiction tests the boundaries of civilized society, numinous forces that cannot be accounted for by the stern light of reason. And I think that's absolutely right too. And it strikes me as no coincidence that you have both opera and the Gothic flourishing at the time of the Enlightenment, because what the Gothic, it seems to be a counter voice, the Gothic, you know, it emerges in 1764 with Walpole, um, uh, the Castle of Otranto, and then it goes on, as we both know, coming in peaks and uh, peaks and troughs, you know, until it, it's always reviving itself, like the vampire in renewing itself. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, that sense of a boundary is often very clearly marked in the Gothic text. You know, the, the, the reader is told you're entering another world. Um, you do it yourself in After Me Comes the Flood, if I can just read a little bit from that first novel you had published. Um, it's, a, it's a man who's lost his way on a journey to um, uh, stay in his brother's house on the coast in Norfolk. Um, and he's, he, he drives down to a road's end. And, and it goes on, I saw ahead of me a well-trodden path so densely wooded, it formed a tunnel of dim green shade. It seemed to suck at me, drawing me deeper in, so that I walked on in a kind of trance. All around I could hear little furtive movements and crickets frantically singing, and there was a lot of white bindweed growing on the verge. After a time, I don't know how long, the path became a little more than a dusty track, and I found myself at the edge of a dying lawn sloping slightly upward to a distant house. How can I explain the impression it had on me to see it high up on the incline, the sun blazing from its windows and pricking the arrow of its weather vane? Everything about it was bright and hard-edged, the slate tiles vivid blue, the chimneys black against the sky, the green door flanked by high white columns from which a flight of steps led down towards the lawn and to a path where I stood waiting on the boundary. That sense of crossing a boundary between one world is clearly there. It's also very strongly there in Murtaugh. I mean, it's very, very strongly there in the unicorn, which is almost, it almost creaks with Gothic effects. <laughs> when she, you know, um, Marion Taylor arrives in the, uh, in the west part of Ireland, thinks she's going to a beautiful pastoral landscape and ends up in this bleak, um, awesome, uh, empty landscape full of bogs and mists and uh, is taken to a place called Gaze, which is almost the equivalent of a Gothic castle. And um, she, she feels panic, absolutely panic stricken. Um, she feels terrified because she knows she's got herself into a different world somehow. It reminded me a bit of Jonathan Harker going to Transylvania. You know, she does, she's frightened of the local people. <laughs> Um, it happens with every, most Gothic novels do this. I mean, Lockwood crosses the, the threshold of, of um, Wuthering Heights and all his metropolitan certainties dissolve. Um, you know, one could go on and on talking about the, the examples of that. But it seems to me that that's 
for these characters, this is a physical crossing. Um, she, um, Murdoch does it in The Bell too, more subtly, I think, when um, uh, Dora comes to Imbercourt and she's faced by a, an elegant building with a um, Palladian facade, which speaks of the Enlightenment. But as soon as she goes in, she sees Catherine Forley and she becomes suddenly chilled. Um, uh, she, she sees, she, um, Murdoch says, the figure she had just seen was disturbing, like a portent, menacing almost. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that, That's, that signaling. When you cross those boundaries, you're right, things are destabilised. But it seems to me that a lot of the Enlightenment certainties are shattered in those interior worlds. Yeah. I completely agree. And that there's two things here that I think are so, so important for people to grasp about the Gothic and also about the craft of fiction generally. So firstly, you're absolutely right. There, there's a fascinating tracery of the appearance, the revival, the re-re-revival of the Gothic in periods of extreme kind of scientific rationality. So, you know, you have the first Gothic coming along post-Enlightenment. As if to say, I'm so glad, you know, that we can calculate the orbit of a comet and, and its orbital period, but there is still much that is strange in the world. And the Gothic arrives to insist on the strange, to insist on the numinous. And it comes in the wake of uh, the French Revolution, um, where the old order is upturned, where everything is up for grabs, nothing can be taken for granted anymore. And then the Gothic appears as if to say, absolutely, you know, is, isn't everything strange? And here's another kind of strangeness that is not political change, but rather something more profound, possibly uh, harder to pin down. Then it comes post Darwin, you know, and you have the late 19th century Gothic. And now we have another form of the Gothic coming in the wake of the kind of early 21st century Dawkins-esque extreme rationality that seems to feel the need to insist on no strangeness. Um, as a kind of almost moral good. And then so we have another flourishing of the Gothic. So it's a really good corrective, I think, to attempts to kind of push out or over-rationalise or over-account for things in the world that are very strange. And I think that's a really interesting, um, yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting way of Gothic responding to political and scientific kind of progress. Does that Makes yes. sense. Yes, it does. But why Murdoch? I mean, if we come back to Murdoch, yeah. you know, he's, yeah. a, he's a philosopher. Yes, you know, an absolutely. Object, an objective think, thinker, supposedly yeah. a rationalist. Yeah. Yet in some of her novels, The Bell, The Unicorn, The Time of the Angels, some people might include The Italian Girl, she uses the Gothic and yeah. she uses it very deliberately. Um, what's she doing? I, I have thought about this quite a lot and I think it's a question of a kind of finding a way to write about post-Christian mid-20th century faith and morality uh, to satisfy herself because she was so questing wasn't she you know I'm reading I'm rereading the sovereignty of good at the moment and one of the things that's so striking about the sovereignty of good is that it reads as Murdoch working through her response to the great philosophers of the 20th century particularly George Bernard Shaw right at the beginning um, and Kant and so on and actually working out almost almost working out with fear and trembling her own salvation you know what is good what is love? How do we move towards this thing? And, and she's not a preacher. You know, Iris Murdoch actually doesn't have answers, which is something that I find very seductive about her. Although she does have in her novels, 
um, the manner of going to your, you know, your favourite lecturer's set in in a, in a Cambridge college and listening to them talk. She doesn't she doesn't sit down and say there is no God, um, there is absolutely no God. Religion is foolish. There's no such thing as a concrete right and wrong that we move towards, and we have to work out a totally secular, totally post-Christian morality. That's not what she's doing. She's sort of dispensing with religion and dispensing with the old God, but she still conceives of love with a capital L, which I find really striking in the bell, in the sovereignty of good. She writes about the quality of love and the quality of good as a sort of abstract, solid thing that you can move towards. Now, for a novelist to write about that, what better mode to write in than one which deals with that that kind of blurred boundary between a solid organized religion which has been dispensed with and absolute reality you know mm -hmm. so her morality which is growing out of and beyond both christianity and much 20th century moral philosophy but still has a feeling of wonder and strangeness is being explored in the perfect mode to do that so she's able to write about people of faith with great compassion and understanding and satirize them and examine them and understand that what they're doing has enormous moral and artistic value. And I think that's almost certainly why I'm so drawn to her because I've come out of a deeply religious background, but I am not totally secular. And that's why I need the Gothic. So to find a, a great writer and a great philosopher who's using the Gothic to build her philosophy is really thrilling. And I don't think there's another mode that could do it for her. I think you're right. I, I and, you know, searching for good in a godless world <laughs> is clearly something that drives her both in her philosophy and in her writing, as you say. Um, you, I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that you and Murdoch have similar backgrounds and not, not in some ways, but in, in spiritually, you were both brought up as Christians. I mean, in fact, you were brought up in quite a strict yes. sect I, or ch in chapter, I think. Um, and then um, Murdoch was brought up as a Christian, then uh, disavowed her faith, went through a, you know, a phase of existentialism. Um, <laughs> then uh, later on in her life, explored all sorts of different religions and ended up um, describing herself as a, as a Christian body. Um, a Buddhist Christian or a Christian Buddhist, which is quite extraordinary. And that's another example of, of her, I think, breaking down boundaries, which the Gothic does, you know. And in her yeah. own life, she she refused to say that she had a simple identity. In her letter, she describes herself as a male homosexual in female guise, which is an extraordinary <laughs> thing to say. So again, those certainties that the Enlightenment gives us, you know, male, female, dead, alive, that, um, she explodes all those, yeah. and, and the Gothic does too. Um, but for Murdoch, Christ remained an important figure, even though she no longer believed in, in God as a figure, a divine figurehead. Um, so we have Anne Cabbage seeing um, Christ in the, in the kitchen, a wonderful domestic setting, one yeah. night in Nuns and Soldiers. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about, does Christ still exist for you as a, as a, as a good man? Mm -hmm. Or is, I mean, I wondered about this when I read Melmoth, for example. Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. And I, for people of faith, there is a very interesting moment where you begin to wonder how much control you actually have over the quality and persistence of the faith that you had or you have. Now, rationally, 
I would, I ought to be effectively an atheist. Um, so you can see behind me on my piano, I have a number of scientific instruments and I have images of the moon that I took with my telescope. I have a spectrograph and a microscope and I make cyanotypes. You know, I'm deeply, deeply interested in the sciences and I have a tendency to want to examine absolutely everything from a sort of scientific perspective. Um, and so I, in some ways, ought to have dispensed entirely with the faith you know that I was brought up with unfortunately that those who are listening who have a faith will understand it's not really a matter of choice in some cases and so I have tried to describe it to people as having a sort of ember in me of a sensation that the figure of Christ is not merely historical of a sensation that however the world came to being however many billions of years ago there was some motivating force behind it that has benevolent and extraordinary consequences for us now and occasionally I try and put the ember out by blowing on it but you know what happens when you blow on an ember so so I never get very far so um, I'm one of these people who stands on that boundary you know like John Cole arriving at the, at the house in Norfolk like Dora you know arriving at the threshold um, I feel very much like that on on a boundaried place where I have no contempt whichever way I look if I look back behind me to the fundamentalism of my childhood I feel no contempt for it at all if I look ahead of me as I imagine towards a, a kind of pure rationalist atheistic state I feel no hatred for that either I have a a, a sensation of wonder at both states um, and sort of half occupy them both and my my fiction is very much an attempt to come to terms with that um, and to try to do it in a way that doesn't sound like um, encountering a preacher, <laughs> a confused <laughs> preacher, which is what I would be. Um, that, that sort of dialogue between science and faith, I think is very much there in the Essex Serpent, you know, um, which uh, I think most people will know that novel, but basically it's, it's, um, it concerns a woman whose husband has recently died, who is uh, very, very interested in paleontology and sees herself as a scientist and goes to, um, through the good offices of friends, goes to a village in Essex where she hopes to track down what she thinks is a surviving dinosaur or dinosaur species from years ago. Now the locals, um, believe in this serpent and many of them believe some don't some do and it becomes the focus of the book about uh, about belief in the what is the supernatural um is there a supernatural or can ever, anything be explained rationally by science and there's this wonderful little episode in the book when Cora who's become very emotionally involved with the local vicar um Will Ransom um sees something they can't really explain now he's a vicar so you might expect him to be caught up in, in the supernatural and faith and things magical, but in fact, he's very rational. Whereas Cora, who's the scientist, uh, is drawn to the, the myth of the serpent. So it's a very complicated portrayal of, of these um, tensions in these personalities. And um, they're walking together one day and they see something extraordinary. They reached the water, the tide was out, mud and shingle gleamed on the westering light. And someone had read the bones of Leviathan in yellow branches of broom. Sedge grew in soft pale sheaves that shimmered when the wind took them. A little distance away, they heard the deep implausible booming of the bittern. The air was sweet and clear. It went in like good wine. Neither was ever certain who first shielded their eyes against the dazzle on the water and saw what lay beyond. Neither recalled having exclaimed, 
or having told the other, look, look, only that all at once both stood transfixed on the path above the sortings gazing east. There on the horizon, between the silver line of water and the sky, there lay a strip of pale and gauzy air. Within the strip sailing far above the water, a barge moved slowly through the lower sky. It was possible to make out the separate pieces of its oxblood sail, which appeared to move under a strong wind. There was quite clearly the deck and the rigging, the dark prow. On it went, flying in full sail, high above the estuary it flickered, and diminished, then regained its size. Then for a moment it was possible to see the image of it inverted just beneath, as if a great mirror had been laid out. The air grew chill, the bittern boomed, each heard the other breathing swiftly, and it was not quite terror they felt, though something like it. Then the mirror vanished, and the boat sailed on alone. A gull flew below the black hull, above the gleaming water. Then some member of the ghostly crew tugged a rope or dropped an anchor. The vessel ceased to move, only hung on silent, wonderful, becalmed against the sky. William Ransom and Cora Seaborn, stripped of code and convention, even of speech, stood with her strong hand in his, children of the earth, and lost in wonder. Now, when I read that, you know, soon after the novel was published, I thought, what, what, what's going on here? And then, of course, uh, this year in March, that phenomenon happened um, outside Helford, and all the newspapers were covered with this picture of a ship that seemed to be floating in the sky. But it seems to me that in many ways, this, this typifies um, that tension between um, the supernatural and the scientific in the novel, and events that can tip one either way or that are um, interpreted differently by different people. And this, of course, happens in um, um, The Message to the Planet when you have superstition and rationality competing in various scenarios right across the novel, mm -hmm. uh, ranging from cults beliefs to um, mathematics and, and, and sci scientific thinking. Um, so I think you know, that's something that the novel does well. And it's something that Murdoch seemed to become more and more interested in in her late work, it seems to mm. me. There's something really wonderful and, and also in some ways slightly challenging um, about her use of, of, of people in uh, quite high up in, in professions of exam, you know, philosophy and priests and so forth, which now I think a lot about how she would be received as a new writer now, because she is very old fashioned in some ways. But what she understands is that if the reader is to have a conduit into these uh, examinations of the sciences versus um, the sublime of rationality versus faith. Iris needs to, you know, she needs to speak. The author needs to speak. Um, and I remember a while back someone criticising Ian McEwan for saying something like, of course, all my characters nowadays are neurosurgeons, but you get to an age when all your friends are neurosurgeons and judges and, and everybody mocked. And I immediately thought of Iris Murdoch and I immediately thought of how once you've read a dozen of her novels you start to perceive the kind of the use over and over again of people in these kinds of professions and this leads me to something I was going to say earlier and managed to forget because I was wiping my nose which I hope is still pertinent which is this we spoke and we agreed absolutely that the gothic isn't a genre it's a mode and it cannot be constructed out of a series of motifs however novels are confabulations they are 
artifacts. Her novels are not realist. So it's a question of the cart before the horse or the horse before the cart. No, Iris Murdoch is not constructing a Gothic novel by having the great granite cliffs of Gay's Castle, you know, that governess arriving in that kind of classic um, early Gothic novel way. She's not, that's not what makes it Gothic, but those motifs enable her to do what the Gothic does, which is to place a character in a situation with the reader where the reader encounters challenges to their morality, challenges to their sanity, challenges to their rationality. Um, and so the use of science is a, is a clever novelist's tool in, in um uh, the, the message from the planet in the Essex event to a kind of less sophisticated degree, I would say, but the novelist is sort of not obliged to just reflect uh, uh, the, the kind of baseline of society. You must use the tools available to you. And in her case, that was using characters who are most likely to encounter these things and to think about them so that they, that can then be passed on to the reader. I hope that makes some sort of sense, but I think about it a lot, partly because novels which insist on their own fabulousness, you know, on their own status as a fable, are actually slightly out of fashion. And, and I would make a plea for the Murdochian use of object and, and person to explore the ideas that novels are constructed around. Uh, I'd make a plea for that to be as sophisticated uh, and as aesthetically pleasing as the kind of modernist, you know, post postmodernist fiction returning to that kind of interiority and, and a kind of refusal of the novel as artifact. Um, yeah, so I, I feel I think about that a lot. <laughs> and it strikes me that, that Murdoch is actually quite um, she teases the reader in some ways about her use of the Gothic. She's quite a self-conscious use of the Gothic. Um, when uh, we read The Bell, there's a minor, well, a character called Noel Spence who says, um, uh, when something awful, you know, something dreadful is being thought about, he says, after all, this is England, not Southern Italy. <laughs> that's a direct uh, echo of what Jane Austen says, of course, in Northanger Abbey, yeah. uh, when Catherine Morland is fantasizing about, you know, the General Tilney having murdered his wife. Um, so, and she's told quite firmly by Henry Tilney, you know, this is not the Mediterranean. We are in Middle England now. So that Murdoch, it must, it must have been a conscious echo of Austen there. And also um, uh, in, uh, in the Unicorn, uh, Marion says quite sharply at one stage, we're not living in the Middle Ages, you know, in the middle of this world where Hannah Green Smith is yeah. like a uh, Princess Luantan. Um, yeah. Marion says, we're not living in the Middle Ages. So you have these characters or the narrator pulling you up sharp occasionally yeah. in these novels, um, you know, almost uh, the intellectual Murdoch stepping in, thinking, you know, saying, okay, this is this is visceral stuff this is visceral yeah. emotion but don't yeah. forget you know this is a novel right um, and, and also I think what is underestimated in Murdoch and in the gothic is that it's really funny yes the gothic is supposed to be funny because that is all part of its capacity to destabilize so at one moment you're on that borderline that we spoke about between repulsion of, of the monk in Matthew Lewis but also being very seduced by him and in Murdoch you'll be in the borderline where I think it's 
I think it's Michael Mead that is going to kind of make a move on this young boy who really admires him in the bell. And you're on the borderline between thinking you'll go on a register, mate. You know, this is really bad behaviour. And <laughs> urging him on, urging him on to touch him, to do something, to, to have some kind of apotheosis of all of this suppression of his sexuality. So it's all of these borderlines. And, and it's also on the border between funny and ridiculous. And there's so much of that in Iris Murdoch. And I think possibly mostly in the sea, the sea, which I find hilarious mm. um, because in a way, you know, you have a kind of inversion of the Gothic heroine. So you can think of Araby, who's this kind of pompous, great art, artistic, great artistic man, um, um, shutting himself away in this kind of vast house with the sea thundering along. And, and, and that, is, that is almost like a, a kind of um, innocent-ish young woman being in this, in this castle. But because it's Charles Araby and he's eating his tins of mackerel and his, his crackers and slices of cucumber, it's very funny. And then when he falls in love with Hartley and, you know, invests this late middle-aged woman toiling with her shopping bags home from the shops and he invests her with all the pathos and all the passion of youthful desire that's that's very funny as well and that doesn't stop it from being also deeply profound and deeply unsettling mm -hmm. and I, I once described the gothic mode as giving the novelist a chance to have her cake and eat it you know absolutely up to her eyes in in icing because you get to do all of it and Iris gets to do all of it in her most gothic novels. She gets to examine the nature of goodness, the nature of evil, how we live now, the very nature of how we live now and have, have really almost absurd settings like, you know, the buried bell at Imber, will it toll again, the voices of the nuns floating over the water from, from that cloistered abbey, which is, you know, in bad hands would be very lumpen, and it's not. And she gets to be funny. It's 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 an extraordinary. They're just amazing. Um, she avoids melodrama, which a lot of weak gothic writers find themselves trapped in. Yeah, and um, that's a really good point. That's a very good point. And I'll tell you how she avoids melodrama, or I'll ask you if you if you think I'm right. It's because it's always earned. Yeah. Her characters are so psychologically real and so persuasive that whatever happens to them is earned. And I think cheap melodrama comes when you put it the other way around and, and a writer thinks, I'd love to have this event, this argument, this murder, but they don't do all the legwork that she does of building the psyche and the psychology and the morals of her characters before anything actually happens. And that's kind of her great achievement, I think. Yes. No, I agree entirely. Um, I wonder in the time we've got left, whether we can move on to Melmoth, because in some ways on the surface, this doesn't seem like a Murdochian novel. It, take, it seems, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but its form seems to have been inspired by Charles Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer, as does its title. Um, because um, Maturin's novel, long novel, which is not much taught these days and was always more, <laughs> popular, in, always more popular in France than in England, um, it consists of a series of interlocking narrative, like a sort of endless Chinese box. And your novel is constructed like that with a lot of stories within stories and it ranges across centuries from the 17th century up to the modern day and and I have to say we've been talking about humor in gothic novels but I think this is your darkest novel um you know there is a little bit of humor but but not much it seems to me a profoundly moral novel and a very serious novel um uh and it uh, what it seems to do is is 
turn Melmoth, who in uh, Maturin's novel was um, a man, in your novel becomes a woman who is more an uncanny presence than a character. She appears um, at scenes of atrocities and suffering and cruelty across the ages. She appears unbidden. Um, it's, she's been cursed to roam the earth doing this because at the, um, when Christ rose from the tomb, she was among the women gathered there, but she later denied having seen Christ risen. And uh, the price she pays for that is to have to roam the earth, witnessing scene after scene of, of cruelty and evil. Uh, and these, these scenes range from example, a 17th century woman who's accused of being a witch and who faces being burnt at the stake um, and a Czech boy's betrayal of his Jewish friend in Prague when it's invaded by the Nazis. And I'll just read a, a description of, of Melmoth herself um, to give those who haven't um, read the book a sense of what she's like. This is from the 17th century document which records how Melmoth um, appeared to this young woman who was about to be burnt at the stake, accused of being a witch. Um, and this is, this is how Melmoth is described when she arrives in the woman's cell. Now this same woman was tall, so that perforce she must stoop beneath the cell roof, and she wore no cap or hood, so that her hair was loose and seemed also as it were to move as did her apparel. There was that about her which shifted and moved as does a candle flame, her skin withal both light and dark, and her eyes which were very large, having about them the manner of ink which has been dropped into water. Her feet were bare, and it seemed that she must needs have waded through a charnel house, for they were blooded to the very ankle, and there was upon the stone the prince of them, scarlet, marking where she had stood. Greatly afraid and bewildered, Alice cried out, and cried out three times, and yet none came, nor did the woman move, nor raise her hand nor speak, until she had ceased her crying out and fallen senseless upon the floor. When she woke, it was her ardent hope that it had been naught but a dream, but there was beneath her head something soft, and something soft also upon her arm, moving as it were, a hand stroking her. She, he she heard also the sound, which as she said to me, was a woman speaking without words, which is to say the crooning of a mother to a child. And this crooning, though much soft, pierced her through with a hot terror, so that she lay unmoving and insensible. Just want to ask you one quick question first and then move on to the you know the heavy stuff why did you make Mel well the woman and what is her function in the novel as a witness i've been exercised all my life and i do mean all my life since i was a, a, a child reading <coughs> i what always seemed to be the injustice that women never get to be the titular villains we have Carmilla um but generally speaking you know women don't get to have their name in the title and be the villain and I remember thinking when I was very young and, and I was a very precocious early reader so I would have read Frankenstein and Dracula when I was sort of 10 11 that one day I would write a novel with a female monster as the as the title and then when I read Melmoth the Wanderer for my PhD so this would have been 2010, something like that, so it was about 30. Um, I remember thinking, God, I would really love to, to turn this into a contemporary novel in some way and make her female. But, you know, it's not enough to, to just switch the pronouns, you know, say this is a villain and it's a her, you know, Melmoth is now. You have to do something with the fact that you've elected to make that character 
a woman or not a woman um, if you're making a point about it. And so it was really necessary for me that her nature and the nature of her curse had something about it um, that could survive a kind of feminist inquisition, right? So um, the nature of Melmoth's curse is that she's a woman who wasn't believed. So she was one of the women who saw Christ risen from the tomb. The women ran to tell the disciples and the disciples didn't believe them. That's, that's, in, that's the, the scriptural account. Um, and so knowing my Melmoth, knowing she would not be believed, said, no, I didn't because, you know, she wouldn't be believed anyway. So therefore she is cursed for having been cursed. Mm. The, the nature of, of being female means that the men wouldn't believe her. And she acknowledged that. And then she was cursed anyway. Mm. And the punishment is that she must bear witness to atrocity without being able to intervene, which historically has been the lot of women that the men uh, historically, certainly, went off and did the atrocities and whatever role the women may have played behind the lines, as it were, they were waiting and they were bearing witness. And when you read about historical atrocities, it's very often women that have made the first person accounts. So some of the atrocities that Melmoth bears witness to, um, one, of, one of them is the Armenian genocide uh, mm. in 1916. And if you read, if you look for first person accounts of that, it's very often women, aid workers and missionaries that were there um, and that watched and tended to the dying um, and wrote it down. So that's, that's why she's female. And and I made her a witness because this is a terribly old fashioned thing to say, and it's the sort of the thing I, I get mocked for. I'm deeply exercised with writing good books, as in morally good books, books that deserve to exist in a kind of moral and ethical sense. And after the publication of The Essex Serpent, which went extraordinarily well, better than, than any of us would ever have imagined, um, the world turned and it became very wicked very quickly. It had always been very wicked, but to an extent we hadn't been able to see it. But after the publication of The Essex Serpent, there was, um, I think on the day of the launch, there was the massacre at the Orlando nightclub when 53 queer people died in a massacre in Florida. And the Syrian refugee crisis was absolutely at its height. And, you know, the press, the right-wing press was pleading the case for, you know, Syrian toddlers to be left to drown in the Mediterranean and, and not left on our shores. And I wanted to give up writing fiction. I was kind of vaguely disgusted by the idea that I had a, a reasonable intellect and I'd spent my time writing novels, which seemed to me to have very little kind of moral purpose or, um, or, or, or kind of use. And so in order to feel that being a novelist had value, in, the, in a wicked world, that, that I could do something good in a wicked world, I had to make my book good. Um, and so making Melmoth bear witness to atrocity and, and to speak about moral and collective responsibility was a way of, of negotiating that, I think. That, that seems to be very Madocking actually, because um, I think both Murdoch's fiction and her philosophy imply that true enlightenment lies in confronting the darkest spaces in history and within ourselves, you know, and, and Melmoth, your novel Melmoth very, very much does that. But it also, I think, um, like many of Murdoch's novels, poses, poses moral conundrums for the reader, at least it did for me. Just to give one example, um, Helen Franklin, through whom much of the book is focalised, um, who lives in Prague, um, we, we learn her backstory and that backstory involves um, uh, living in the Philippines and having a partner who was a pharmacist 
and um, she took some morphine from her partner. He's illegally acquired it as a pharmacist. And she then commits euthanasia because she's been visiting a young woman in hospital who's suffering horribly because her partner has thrown acid over her and she's appallingly burned. And she keeps saying, I want to die, I want to die. <coughs> Helen witnesses this, sees this, and she takes morphine from her um, pharmacist partner and she gives it to Rosa, this young woman, and Rosa dies. Now, when Helen's partner is wrongfully arrested for the murder of, of Rosa, because everyone assumes he did it because he's a pharmacist and could get the morphine, Helen does not speak. She does not um, confess that she committed the murder and he goes to prison instead of her. And that's the burden that she bears in the novel. We don't, we don't know for a long while why she, while she, why she doesn't eat, why she doesn't look after herself, but it becomes apparent that she is bearing this terrible burden of moral guilt because she, she was silent when she could have spoke out. Now, that seems to be a very Madochian conundrum. You know, the reader is left to puzzle over that. What should have happened? What should she have done? Should she have used the morphine in the first place? Why did she keep silent? Why did she not confess um, yes. to her own deed? Um, and it seemed to me that this asks one to think about um, what's morally good and what's not. I mean, in this case, um, she, she commits something, she commits euthanasia, um, which is illegal but she doesn't go to prison, but she stays silent, which is not illegal, but morally it's appalling when she committed that crime. Yeah. So the, the reader is left to sort of mull over this moral um, conundrum uh, and to think about it very hard and to think about the law as well as morality as well. So, and I thought when I read that, when I read the book again recently, I thought this um, is a Madocian novel because one of its prime functions is to um, ask searching questions about morality. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, you're not only right, but you've sort of slightly healed um, a, bro a broken heart. Um, it's, it's always very hard for any novelist to follow up a very successful novel. It's very difficult. And Melmoth had an extraordinary response from the critics in that some praised it more than I'd ever been praised before, yes. but it was also the recipient of dev devastating hatchet yeah. jobs. I mean, I didn't write for a year. I, I couldn't write okay. for a year. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was because people were so shocked <clears throat> that someone who had made their name with historical fiction, you know, with the Gothic 19th century novel, had apparently veered wildly off course into something very serious and profound about moral choice and goodness I see it as all being part of the same project which if I'm given the years I will continue to write novels about this until I shuffle off this mortal coil and and it has always devastated me slightly that that people couldn't understand that it was the same thing that I was writing about the same thing over and over again which is how to be good mm. And, and asking the reader about how to be good and what do you think was good and absolutely that's what Melmoth is about absolutely and you know Murdoch at her most provocative would send that there's a kind of new puritanism at the moment that I think is largely American um, and that is is very very evident on social media which is that a novel must reflect absolutely the novelist's morals 
and ideally the reader's morals. And a challenge to either of those marks the book out as bad. So because of the TV adaptation of The Essex Serpent, there's now a lot of 19-year-old sort of Americans, fans of the Marvel films, who are now reading The Essex Serpent. And the number of times I see reviews from these, I assume, quite young people who are absolutely appalled that, as one of them said recently, a vicar fancies another woman when his wife isn't even dead yet. And I remember thinking, you really need to go read some Irish Murdoch, because bloody hell, you know? And so one of the things that she does so wonderfully is say to the reader, well, what do you think? You know, we know what the legal position is. We know what the uh, conventional moral position is, but what do you think? And, you know, one of my favourite novels of hers is The Severed Head, yeah. because yeah. she writes about incest, you know, a sexual taboo, um, in a way that is compassionate and funny and interrogating. And she says to the reader, well, what do you think? Yeah. And the reader can't go, actually, I'm disgusted, because she didn't write it like that. She doesn't let you. Yeah. And that's it. You know, if I were to take away from Murdoch's work uh, a light, you know, to suspend from the ceiling of my very dark study to guide me, oddly enough, it wouldn't really be the Gothic itself, but what she does with the Gothic, and, and that is to say to the reader, well, what do you think is good? What are you going to do about it? And the novel I'm writing at the moment, I'm really playing with adultery because it's sort of one of our last reserves to shock the reader. Mm. <clears throat> you know, the 19th century, the great 19th century novelists were kind of lucky because there were so many social and moral taboos that they could derive drama out of all sorts of things, whereas there's not much left to the novelist now if they want to shock the reader. Mm. And sexual infidelity is one of the last taboos that enable you to kind of have people, as I've recently seen, throw the book at the wall, which is just the best thing. It's absolutely the best thing that could happen to me. I'd rather that than have five stars on Amazon. I just really hope that I continue to piss people off. Yeah. But it is, it is still very nice that you uh, that you saw that moral, that, you know, Mel Moth is, is a book about goodness and, yeah, and moral it, it joy. It struck me as a very Madocking novel. Um, and I noticed at the time, it was a book that divided the, the critics. Yeah. On yeah. the one hand, in The Guardian, you were just, you know, it was described as a work of genius, but in yeah. some other sources, I think they were just completely perplexed, a lot of critics, yeah. and therefore yeah. attacked it because they just didn't... Yeah quite understand what you were trying to yeah. and also there was a really very very interesting moment when it was reviewed actually I won't say by whom but 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 by a fellow gothic writer who actually said you think you're reading a gothic novel and then suddenly it becomes a book about guilt and sin yeah. and I thought <laughs> someone needs to go back and do A-level English because you know <laughs> that's, that's what the gothic is yes. the gothic is not a, genre, a fun genre it is a mode that allows people like iris murdoch and people like matthew lewis to write about goodness and wickedness that's that's what it is i think sarah that's we've had our 55 minutes so i think that's a good note on which to end up which i've enjoyed very much <laughs> thank so, you um, so much thank you, Avril. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Okay.